With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, you guys. Um, This audio right here is not the best quality, but I promise the rest of the episode will be better. I'm doing this on my phone really quickly because my kiddos are home sick and um, they're not behaving in my studios upstairs next to their room. So anyway, we just wanted to let you know really quickly that this Sunday, which is Halloween, October 31st, we are um, going to be on an episode with a Paranormal Chicks podcast. Um, They had us on as guests, and we talk about a Halloween murder. So definitely check that out if you want a bonus episode. That is a paranormal chicks, and you can get that anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Hi. Hi. Welcome back to Killer Queens. The show where everything's made up and the points don't matter. I know. We gotta make we gotta find some other cool things to say like that. I know. Because that's the only one we got. Yeah. And it's gonna get old. It already is, probably. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I like I'm it. not done with it yet. Yeah. But happy Halloween. <laughs> this is the worst time of year for Torella because she's scared out of her mind. Yeah, commercials just really get me right now. There's a lot of scary commercials. <laughs> They're like always trying to advertise the um, haunted houses and they're scary. I love it. 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 And this case is going to be hard for you because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about scary movies. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That I've never seen. Yeah. Clearly. But I will reenact them for you. So. Oh, great. Remember that time that I told you the entire plot of Hereditary uh, and your eyes were so big and you're like, why did you tell me this? I will never forget that. <laughs> Because like, and that was when Jesse was super little and I was still, we were still having to get up in the middle of the night to feed him. <gasps> and so I would get up in the middle of the night. It would be my turn to do the middle of the night thing. And I would just be like, don't think about it. Don't think about it. But it's all I could think about. And I'm just like, I'm so Sorry. scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. didn't even see it though. No. <laughs> I love Hereditary. I love horror movies though. Yeah. Not this bitch. <laughs> but that being said, you know, today we're going to be talking about the murder of Dominique Dunn. And a lot of people refer to it as like the poltergeist case. Yeah, because she was in poltergeist, but which Trilla has no idea about. But no, I was like, oh, was she? At first I was like, was she the little girl in it? Like, was she in it when she was really little? But yeah, no, that's how much I know about poltergeist. (laughs) And that's how much I will know about poltergeist. I want to know nothing more. 
But let's give a little overview of the case and then get to some business. What do you think? Love it. Okay. In July of 1982, the movie Poltergeist was released in theaters and was a runaway success. As one of its stars, Dominique Dunn's career began to take off. In October of 1982, 22-year-old Dominique was beginning to prepare for her next role and was looking forward to her career's growth off of the success of Poltergeist. Her boyfriend, however, wasn't able to handle his jealousy and anger at her newfound attention, and Dominique would ultimately pay for that with her life. Ugh, what a fucking dick. Total fucking dick. We do want to give you a couple trigger warnings. So we're going to be discussing an abusive relationship, assault, strangulation, physical abuse or violence, and of course, murder. So we just want to put that out there. If you are Torella, the trigger warning would be horror movies. Yeah, we are going to mention a movie and not even talk about it really, but it's scary. (laughs) So just get ready for that. Before we continue on with the case, we do just want to remind you or tell you for the first time, we don't Mm -hmm. know your life, but you can follow us on Instagram. We are doing polls over there. We're doing a lot of fun stuff. We are sending out badass emails every week so you can catch up with like what we covered before if you missed it, what we're covering that week on all of our different shows so you can see if there's a case you want to hear about. And we're also giving you some 90s throwbacks and a little sneak peek into our lives a little bit more. So mm-hmm. definitely check that out. You can sign up for that at killerqueens.link slash join. You can check out our Patreon where we've got tons of episodes there for you to binge well over probably like 150 episodes just waiting for you. Yeah. And they're all ad-free. All ad-free. Everything on the Patreon is ad-free. You can get access to our old episodes on the Patreon. So definitely check that out. And I do want to reiterate or just remind you guys that if you were to leave a review and you screenshot it and send it to us at killerqueenspodcast at gmail.com. We will send you a sticker if you'd like. So yes, absolutely. Send yes, send a screenshot of your review and your address. Yes, all and your that information. Way we can send it to you. And we've gotten a few lately and I'm really excited about them. Oh yeah, they're great. And I want to start featuring them too. So we're gonna yeah. do some fun things featuring your reviews. So definitely do that. And make sure you follow us on Spotify's Green Room, where we have a whole other show called True Crime Rewind, and it's only on Spotify Green Room. And that is Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Central. Yay. All right. I think that's I think that's all the biz. Enough with the housekeeping. All right. Let's get to the case. Dominique Dunn was born in Santa Monica, California in November of 1959. Her mother, Ellen, who went by Lenny Griffin Dunn, which I think is the fucking cutest. (laughs) I know. I was like, I didn't expect them because you would think like L. I I would not have thought Len or Uh, Lenny. uh, Lenny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just, I really need you to have a little girl and call her Lenny. I know. I actually know a girl that has a daughter named Lenny. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. It's so cute. Yeah. But Lenny was the heiress to a ranching empire in Arizona when she met Dominic Dunn which is Dominique's father. So when they met, Dominic was a writer, actor, and a producer. He worked on television and film and was credited as a producer or executive producer on several projects. So we've got two people who are very well-to-do and they're traveling in those higher circles of society. 
Yes, society. I was like, mm-hmm. social, no, <laughs> society. Not long after Dominic and Ellen married, they decided to move to Beverly Hills and they had four children, Griffin and Alex. And then they had two daughters who died in infancy. And they, it was just days after they were born. Um, but their fifth child was young Dominique. And Ellen said after her birth, I've never been so excited and happy in my life. I've always wanted a little girl. Mm-hmm. And Dominic said he wrote this really, really long article for Vanity Fair sometime after Dominique's death, but he kind of chronicled this whole experience. Time in their life and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And he talked about Dominique's birth. And he said that the two girls who had passed away previously were there was a um a congenital condition that was very common in C-section births at that time. And so the two girls had this condition and they passed away from it. Mm-hmm. So then when they had Dominique, he said she was all three daughters wrapped into one, basically. And so she he said she was triply loved. That oh. they kind of put all of that for all three of their girls. It's really sweet. That is really sweet. When Dominique was still a child, Ellen and Dominic got a divorce and Dominique went to live with her mother. Although she lived with her mother, she remained close with her father as well. Since her mother came from money and her father was a successful writer and producer, their family was, like we said, fairly well off. Dominique attended exclusive private schools throughout her life. And it was at one of these schools, Fountain Valley High School in Colorado, where she discovered an interest in acting after she won a drama award. Fountain Valley High School sounds like a book series. Oh, Fountain it does. Valley High. Don't yes. you think? Yes. Yeah. It totally does. I can't remember the name of the ones that Sweet I Sweet Valley to. High. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, that totally sounds like that. You're right. And you could like play girl talk while you like read these books or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember girl talk. Get out of here. Okay. I don't even know what I was saying. Sorry. Small madness. Of course. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so, like, Dominic moved to New York at some point after the divorce, and then Lenny stayed on the West Coast. So they would kind of travel back and forth some, but she still was super, super close with her father. After high school, Dominique decided to go to Italy for a year so she could study Italian by immersing herself in the language and culture. During this year away, however, Dominique's mom, I'm just going to call her Lenny because I love it. Uh, Lenny was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and devastated by this diagnosis, Dominique cut her stay in Italy short and returned home to be with her mother. And it was during this time with her mother that Dominique decided she was going to give acting a serious shot. And she enrolled at Colorado State University to study drama. While she was there, she met Kent Adams, who said that Dominique was a bit of a fish out of water at CSU. Her family was wealthy. She came from Hollywood. And you could just tell that she was different. She was amongst all these, quote, hicks, according to Adams. But when she got on the stage, she was right at home and she fit in. After only a year at CSU, Dominique decided that she wanted to go back to Hollywood and see if she could make this acting thing work. When she arrived back in Hollywood, she reached out to a family friend, producer Charlie Wessler. He produced Dumb and Dumber. So. Mm -hmm. Wessler had been a friend of the family through Dominique's older brother, who's also an actor, Griffin. And Griffin is in the show This Is Us. 
He is Uncle Nicky, who is Jack's brother in that show. I've never watched that show because I've heard it's just tears, tears all, all, all around. I know. Some people really like that kind of thing. Like, this is us and parenthood and stuff like that. And I just can't do it because of that reason. Yeah, I can't do it. I, I cry enough as it is. I don't need another excuse. <laughs> he had known Dominique since she was six years old. And knowing that she was talented, Wessler immediately set Dominique up with a casting director. So this is not the path that most aspiring actors take. Right. I mean, she had, she had some connections, right? She had a lot of connections. Yeah. But she was still very, very talented. It's not like people were just giving her stuff because they knew her parents or whatever. Right. She had that in, but she was very talented. After meeting with her, the casting director set up a meeting with Nicole David, who was a very well-known agent at the time. And after meeting with Dominique, Nicole David sent her out for auditions. And literally within a week or two, Dominique had booked her first job. And they kind of joked that it was like Dominique decided she wanted to be an actor. And then the next day she was like on set, you know, right with her first role kind of thing. And again, does not that doesn't usually happen. Exactly. Dominique was able to book several jobs, including a starring role in a made for TV movie called The Haunting of Harrington House. Although she'd seen some early success and was working hard, Dominique knew that there was more that she could be doing. So she enrolled in an acting workshop given by Milton Ketzelis. And over the years, Ketzelis had many students, including Gene Hackman, Alec Baldwin, Giovanni Ribisi, Jenna Elfman, Michelle Pfeiffer. So like, he's turning out some pretty A-list actors here. Yes. And I just had a conversation with a friend about Gene Hackman the other day because we were watching The Birdcage. And then I was talking about when he was in Young Frankenstein and he's like, oh, I was going to make espresso. <laughs> like when, remember <laughs> when he busts out? Because, I mean, he was giving him hell, basically. But yeah. Yeah. He's, love Gene Hackman. I love Gene Hackman. At the time, Kitsellis was a Scientologist, and some students said that looking back, there was definitely pressure to join the church while there. And then later, he made a break from the organization, and he lost several students that were still members of the church. But again, another person that has a lot of really high-level connections. These workshops were also attended by actor Miguel Ferrer who said they were pretty intense. It was very straightforward. He said twice a week, four hours a night. Damn. That's a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. He said it would be scene study, none of this be a tree nonsense. Students would do scenes from various plays as part of the workshop, and Dominique received praise from everyone from doing a scene from The Miracle Worker, which was about Helen Keller. While she was going to these workshops and continuing to audition, she got another leading role in a TV movie called Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. Off the strength of her performance in that, Dominique got the role of the eldest daughter in the upcoming Steven Spielberg-produced horror movie, Poltergeist. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Poltergeist. And this is going to be completely brand new information to Torella. Yeah, I know nothing about it. Never heard of him. <laughs> I'll give you a synopsis of Poltergeist. So Poltergeist is the story of a young family that is visited by ghosts in their home. At first, the ghosts appear to be friendly, moving objects around the house to um, the amusement of everyone. Then they turn nasty and start to terrorize the family before they kidnap their youngest daughter, Carol Ann. Who, like, I'm sorry. Who is like, these silly ghosts, they're just well, moving all my stuff around. Well, no, no, no. At first, the mom, because she's at home, right? She's a, a stay-at-home mom. She sees it at first because what happens, I think the first time is the cabinet doors are open or like the chairs move and she's freaked out. And then um, she moves everything back. And then 
they move it again. And she's it's, again, freaked out. Then she comes back in and all of the, the chairs from the table are like all on the, on the table, like in a really crazy, like, you know, she's freaked out at first, but then since she's spending the entire day there by herself, she starts to have fun with it. Like, I think they do something with Carol Ann where she's sitting on the floor and she like rides across the floor or something. It's kind of, I don't know, but th- she's scared, freaked out at first, but mm. then, yeah. Yeah. Then she so, loses her damn mind. Yes. So some people claim that Poltergeist was a cursed film franchise. There were four deaths associated with the cast during or around the shooting of the series. Obviously, the case we're talking about today is one of those deaths. And there were two others that were a little more predictable and not mysterious. Actor Julian Beck was in Poltergeist 2. And in 1983, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer and died shortly after filming the movie. I mean, it's it's a terrible thing, but it's not eerie or spooky or kind of suspicious. Will Sampson was also in Poltergeist 2, and he died after complications arose from a heart and lung transplant. And I know any kind of transplant is a dicey... Yeah, you just never know. Yes. Mm, That's sad. Heather O'Rourke, and this is a really sad one, played the character Carol Ann Freeling, the younger sister of Dominique's Dana Freeling. And she was the one, you know, they're here. Yeah. Because she's talking to the ghosts in TV. Yeah, hell no. (laughs) <laughs> it's really not scary, but... Like, anytime the Snow Channel would come on, because we had that one TV that, like, had a short circuit in our room or whatever, and it would come on in the middle of the night, and it was the Snow Channel. Oh, and yeah. I would be like, fuck, no. Like, I've never seen that movie, but I know what's happening, and the ghosts are here. And well, we and, didn't have ghosts in that sense. I mean, when The Ring came out... Oh, shit. And that came on, because we had a cable box, and or a DirecTV box. So it would come on, but the DirecTV box didn't come on. And I was like... <laughs> Like, she's coming. Samara is coming. Yeah. Yes. So Heather was six years old when the first Poltergeist was released and immediately won the hearts of audiences. Like, literally, she is a precious angel. So cute. Mm, In 1987, however, she became ill and was misdiagnosed as having Crohn's disease. A year later, when she fell ill again, her symptoms were written off as being the flu. A day later, she collapsed and went into cardiac arrest and was airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego. Once there, she was taken into surgery to correct a bowel obstruction. She died during that surgery, and it was later discovered that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality, which caused her to go into septic shock when she was undiagnosed for so long. Oh, gosh. It's so sad. And she was so little. She was so cute and talented. I mean, my gosh. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is interesting to me, though, side note, that a lot of people say, like, kid actors that were in horror movies, had absolutely, like, the little kid from The Shining, he had no idea that he was in a horror movie. Oh, really? Yeah, he didn't know it was horror. He thought it was, like, a drama. Uh, But he was so little that they, like, really tried to not... They didn't want to scare the shit out of him, you know? Well, that's good. I always wondered about that, like, you know? Yeah, no, he had no idea. Oh, well, good. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. They tried to make it fun on set for him, of course, but... Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, God, Shelley Duvall. God bless her. She to be hospitalized because she cried so much. She was like dehydrated and shit. Mm. Anyway, Stanley Kubrick, he was a nut. <laughs> yeah. People claimed that the series was cursed because during filming, Steven Spielberg insisted on using actual human skeletons as props to save money and time. Uh, it can't be that hard to get a fake skeleton, Spielberg. <laughs> Don't you think? I think. I mean, you can get it at Party City. 
Well, but did they have party cities back? Was he close to one? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, was there something very special about these skeletons? Again, I haven't seen the movies, so I don't know. <sighs> I did not. Honestly, had I had no idea that they were real skeletons. That is very, very concerning. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, I don't either. It would have taken more time to make fake skeletons than the actual than to actually get real human remains. These claims have never been proven or confirmed. It was also said that during filming, actor Will Sampson performed an authentic exorcism after shooting Wrapped one night. Sampson was the actor who we just talked about who died after his heart and lung transplant. So there were two deaths surrounding the series, or so there were deaths, excuse me, surrounding the series, two of them not really expected given the people's conditions, and the other two were definitely out of the blue, which contributed to much of the lore surrounding the Poltergeist series. Yeah, I don't think it was cursed. I think it's just... It's a really, really, really awful... Yeah. Coincidence? Yeah, I think it would lend itself more to being like, ooh, it's like cursed if like everybody... And I'm not saying this in any... I'm not trying to make light of this in any way, shape, or form, but like if all of these people who passed away after filming or whatever had been like murdered a certain way, if it was like final destination kind of like- Right, like death was coming for them. Yeah, like I would, I think that would lend more to with the curse thing, but it's like these people had medical issues. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, people, if they want to be scared, they're going to find a reason to be scared and they want it to be spooky. Yeah, I want none of it to be spooky. (laughs) I also want to clear up the fact that I do love Stanley Kubrick and his movies, but um, I feel like people are going to come for me for saying that he was a nut. I just thought his method of directing was really intense. So that's what I meant by that. Mm, Okay. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know enough about it to dispute it. (laughs) Okay. So now let's get into John Thomas Sweeney. Gross. Gross, yeah. In 1981, before the release of Poltergeist and her launch into stardom, Dominique and some friends had decided that instead of going out to celebrate a birthday, they would just throw their own party. And it was during this party that Dominique met John Sweeney. She was quickly attracted to Sweeney, despite the differences in their upbringings and the difference in their age. They were seven years apart, I think. You know, he's almost 30 and she's 22. Yeah, she's, she's young, yeah. Yeah, she's very young. And, you know, whatever, but he's not attractive. Mm -mm. Not, uh, this is going to sound hateful. He's not as attractive as she was. And it was definitely one of those things where I feel like it was like, that's a mismatch. I mean, yeah, because we know so much about him and we're going to get into it. He was a piece of shit. He was a bag of trash. So she definitely was out of his league. Yeah, 100%. And he didn't deserve her. Nope. Where Dominique grew up in a privileged, affluent family, Sweeney grew up in the coal mining town of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and he was the oldest of six children in a poor Irish Catholic family. His father, John Sr., was a factory worker at the local beryllium plant, and his mother, Maura, was a waitress. Wait, was beryllium, wasn't that in uh, Galaxy Quest? Maybe. Weren't they looking for beryllium? They had to go on that planet and fight the rock monster? (laughs) yes how do you remember this kind of shit (laughs) i just watched it (laughs) oh okay okay well that makes sense like a year ago but still i oh we have not said thank you to mark for writing the script oh my gosh what are we doing yeah we are pieces of garbage ourselves pieces of garbage yeah so sorry thank you mark for writing this because mark added a note that beryllium is used in different alloys to increase their electrical and thermal conductivity conductivity 
I don't I, know I think where you got those right. syllable goes. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what any of those words mean. Mm, yeah. I know Alloy is a magazine I used to love. Oh, God. They had the best clothes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> a little cheaper than Delia's, for sure. <laughs> and this is why we get the reviews. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we're kidding. It was widely known by friends and neighbors that John Sr. had a drinking problem and that he was abusive to his wife and children. So John Sr. would get loaded and then start to beat up his wife. And when this would happen, John Jr., which is John Sweeney that we're talking about, would step in and try to defend his mother, resulting in his father then directing his rage at him. This went on for years. During high school, John decided he needed to do something to get out of their town and better himself. So he was attracted to cooking in the food industry and decided he wanted to become a chef. After high school, he enrolled at the local community college and studied the culinary arts. After he graduated, he got a job at a local restaurant, Carmen's. And the owner of the restaurant was like, look, John, you got to get out of this godforsaken town. There (laughs) must be more than this provincial life. Yes. Yeah. And he was like, you're too good for this town. You can do bigger and better things in like a bigger city. Co-workers at the time said that it was clear that John had talent, but his temper was also evident, which seems to work for that one angry chef. What's his name? Um. Oh, fuck. What is his name? You guys Oh, know. my God. What? Yeah. He's like in Hell's Kitchen. Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. So angry, L. He is very angry. But then if you watch like that show where it's like the little kid talk show. Oh, my chef, God. He's so good with the little kids. I know. I was scared for those kids at first. He is like a warhead. He's like hard on the outside. And then you get to like the kind of sweet gummy center. Mm -hmm. Oh, gummy, eh? Well, you know what I mean? Like he's just kind of, he softens. Yeah, I get it. I get it. He's a gummy bear. He's a gummy bear. Yeah. Sweeney was also a fairly large person. He was interested in martial arts and would take self-defense classes offered in their small town. So... We've got a combination here of somebody who's trained in fighting now. Great. And he's pretty large. Mm-hmm. And he's got the temper of an angry goose. <laughs> and geese are meaner They're than They're fucking mean. <laughs> I know. I know. Miss KB's always like, why don't you go give it a kiss? And I'm like, uh, absolutely. I don't want my face bitten off by yeah. this goose. I, I have decided that today is not the day I want to die. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> In 1976, John decided to move to Los Angeles and try to get a job there. And once there, he got a job at Ma Maison. Ooh, Ma Maison. Ma Maison. And this was, at the time, one of the most exclusive restaurants in the country. Celebrities were constantly in and out of the dining room. And the executive chef at the time when John was hired was none other than a 25-year-old Wolfgang Puck. Okay, I feel like a total idiot because I thought Wolfgang Puck was like very, very, very old and no longer with us. Oh, I didn't know anything really about him, just that he was a chef. I'm thinking, I guess, like the name Wolfgang is very... Wolfgang! Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Wolfgang Amadeus, whatever, you know, it's like... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was 25 in the the 70s, so... Yeah. Um, But if I didn't hate John so much, I would say good for him. I know, I know. And that's the thing, like, we talk about people's upbringing, so much potential. Yeah. And it's like that movie, The Cell, where it's like you see the little boy and you feel bad for the little boy because mm-hmm. of what he's going through. And then they become an adult and you're like, yeah, but you know that you're not supposed to fucking kill people. I mean, that's just a given. Really? 
Oh, okay. All right, well, let's stop right here. Hey, guys, uh, you're not supposed to kill people. Okay, PSA, don't yeah. kill people. If you didn't know, now you know. Yes. So he's got this really good opportunity. He's working alongside Wolfgang Puck, mm-hmm. which, you know, I guess at the time, you don't know what he's going to go on to be. But at the time, he was still a fucking amazing chef. Mm-hmm. And he's gotten out of his little town, but he's got this temper that he just cannot control. Like, just cannot control. Also, though, I read that in Dominic Dunn's article in Vanity Fair, that Mamezan was so exclusive that they didn't even have their phone number listed. Like, they didn't want the general public to try and make a reservation, God forbid. And if they did, they'd be like, Mamezan, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Claw, you're welcome. Yeah. Other chefs said that the kitchen of Mamezan was the most pressure-packed kitchen they'd ever worked in, and the atmosphere was intense because you were under the gun constantly. I mean, I can't imagine because there's celebrities in there all the time, so it's just yeah. like— It makes me think of that on um, my my best friend's wedding. Yes. But even worse. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's like always a food critic, basically, because mm-hmm. celebrities— when he was first there, John absolutely excelled in the kitchen. He got along with everybody pretty well, but again, his temper is going to come out. Not much thought was given to his temper, though, because it's a pretty common trait in the restaurant industry. Again, Gordon Ramsay. It's it's yeah. honestly encouraged for him, it seems like. It's like part of his character. and Yeah, people want him to get pissed. Yeah. While John was at Mamezan, he showed the skills. Nope. While John was at Maison, the skills he showed made him stand out amongst his peers, so much so that the restaurant owner decided to send him to the south of France for a year to study cuisine and refine his skills. Wow. I mean, just incredible opportunities. hmm Upon his return to the States and Maison in 1981, Wolfgang Puck left the restaurant to open his own Spago, which I think I've heard of. Or maybe It I sounds haven't. familiar, but yeah. I don't, yeah. So after Puck's departure, John was given the executive chef position at this super exclusive restaurant. He's hobnobbing with celebrities all the time. And he just can't keep his shit together. And yeah, to think about if he could have just reined in his temper, Uh what he could have gone on to do. Yeah, he could have gone on probably to have like his His own own restaurants. Yeah, his own restaurants and his own lines of cookware and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But nope. Nope. What a tool bag. So after he became the executive chef at Maison, John and Dominique met and quickly began to date. From outside, it was said that they had a great deal of infatuation towards each other and they seemed really happy together. Dominique's friend, Gloria Gifford, said that she wouldn't say it was love at first sight. She said that from the beginning, John swept her off her feet. He was 100% zoned in on her from the minute he saw her. Miguel Ferrer said that the first time he met John, he thought he was a nice guy. He was generous, charming, and funny. He seemed to care about Dominique a lot and was attentive to her. After the couple had been together for only a few months, they decided to move in together and moved into a cozy two-bedroom house. While Dominique was a very happy moving in with John, her family friend, Charlie Wessler, thought differently of him when they met. Wessler said that when he met John... John seemed like he was putting all of his niceness up front and forcing it upon you. He seemed phony and fake. 
And that is a pretty common trait for somebody who has this like, because I think that's like narcissistic, right? They want you to see this facade in the behind closed doors. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't take them long. That's why they sweep you off your feet in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Love bombing. Mm -hmm. Yes. They've got to get you in there. They've got to get you to where you're like, this is the person for me. Like, I don't want to be without this person. And then when they start to show their true colors, it's like, well, okay, but, you know, I know that he's really sweet or I know that he really cares about me. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. were so happy. This is just kind of a setback or whatever. They want you to like kind of like brush that stuff off Mm -hmm. because it's like, well, but, you know, this is who he is. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they move very, very, very quickly. Always, yeah, move very quickly Mm -hmm. to lock you in. Yeah. As their relationship progressed, Dominique brought John to New York to meet her father and brothers. While they were there, they would go out to nice restaurants every night and generally just have a good time together. One night, they went to Lutece, one of the finest restaurants in New York. As a professional courtesy, they were given everything completely free and treated as VIP guests because of John being the head chef at Maison back on the West Coast. Dominique loved being able to show John off in this way. See, and that's the difference. She is happy for his successes. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 100%. It was on this New York trip that John began to show a different side. One day, while they were at lunch, a fan of the movie Poltergeist was at the bar. When he saw Dominique, he went up and started talking to her. When John saw this, he rushed the guy and picked him up and shook him violently. It's so ridiculous because this guy was in no way, shape, or form. Like, everybody else that was there was like, he wasn't trying to hit on her. It was obviously a fan, and he yelled out, like, like her character's like famous line in the movie, which mm-hmm. was what's happening, isn't it? What's happening? So. Yeah. And he just yelled that out because he saw her and was like, holy shit, I've seen her in a movie. Mm-hmm. And so they spoke very briefly. And I think John was in the bathroom when this happens. And then he comes back and sees them speaking to each other and flips his shit. And had it not gone the way that it went and they stayed together, this doesn't look good for her, obviously, right? I mean, because... Fans are not going to want to come up to her yeah. if he's around. Exactly. Yeah. Just really sad. It was also around this time that Gloria Gifford began to notice a change. She said that she saw that John never wanted Dominique to do anything alone. He started to pull her away and try to isolate her. John also thought that Dominique was sleeping with other people, although he had absolutely big fat no reason to believe that. He thought she was having an affair with her acting coach. When Dominique got a role in the movie, The Shadow Riders opposite Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott, oh my God, the mustaches in that movie. Oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, she wasn't cheating on him with them. But I could understand if she was. But she should have, yeah. Mm-hmm. John told her that she shouldn't take it. His jealousy aside, John also had a drinking problem that progressed further and further. After a few drinks, he was unable to really control his anger or emotions, and he would fly into a fit of rage over the littlest things. As a result, they began to fight frequently, and John became physically abusive. On August 27th, 1982, Dominique showed up at her mother's house crying hysterically. She told her mother that they had been fighting and that John hit her head against the floor and pulled out handfuls of her hair. He literally was pulling out handfuls of her hair from her head. Mm-mm. That takes a lot of force. Yeah, it does. A lot of force. And she was like just cowering down. And people saw this. Mm. Like, it's not just, it's not hearsay. And we'll get back to that later. <laughs> but people saw this and, and yeah. it happened. I mean, she was she had she hair had pulled out of her head. To, yeah. yeah. 
<sighs> yeah, exactly. She had the missing chunks to prove it. Yeah. John showed up and began to bang on the doors and windows demanding to be let in. Ellen Dunn, Lenny, told John to leave and threatened to call the police. Eventually, John left. Two days later, though, John showed up with flowers apologizing and he and Dominique reconciled. On September 26th, Dominique had a friend, Brian Cook, and his girlfriend, Denise, in town visiting from Chicago. They all went out to dinner at Malmaison and then went to a local bar for drinks. Then they returned home, had a few more drinks. A while later, they said their goodnights and went to bed. Brian and Denise stayed on the sofa bed while Dominique and John went to their bedroom. A short time later, Brian and Denise heard Dominique yelling for help and making a choking sound. Brian went to the door and told him to knock it off and they would settle it in the morning. A short while later, they heard Dominique yelling again for help. Brian went into the bedroom and saw John pulling a chair in front of the door. A few minutes later, Dominique and John came out and Dominique showed marks and bruises on her neck where she had been choked. She asked John if she could go to the bathroom and he said yes. That's 100% concerning. I mean, all of it is obviously, right? But she had to ask his permission to go to the bathroom. Yeah, and I mean, initially, he says he hears her yelling for help and making a choking sound. And maybe and he's he like, hey guys, quit it. Yeah, maybe it didn't register as a choking sound at first, but she's at, she's yelling help. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Hey, trying to get some sleep out here. Shut it up!" Like, yeah, you can you can finish this brutal fight tomorrow. Yeah, I don't want to be here for that. It's none of my business. Yeah, woof. Yeah. A few minutes later, Brian, John, and Denise heard Dominique's Volkswagen start up. John immediately ran out and jumped on the hood and held onto the windshield wipers as she drove away. About a block down the road, she stopped and he jumped off and walked back to their home. Dominique went to a friend's house and stayed the night. The next morning, the friend took pictures of the bruising on Dominique's neck and face. In the photo, she was laughing because the friend said she wouldn't need makeup for the audition that day. She was auditioning to play a battered teen in Hill Street Blues, which was kind of a law and order type of show in the 80s. She ended up getting the part and the bruising was so bad during filming that she really did not need makeup. The the photos from that TV show, her appearance in that are horrific. This is not just like she has a couple of bruises. She is beat the fuck up. Mm -hmm. One entire side of her face is a bruise. And they're real. Yeah. And they're real. And it's just also very concerning that like when she went to the audition and she was already like that, maybe she told them she had done makeup for it. I don't know. But like, Mm -hmm that everybody's just like, cool, you've already got the bruises, so check that off the list. Like, I don't yeah. even have to do that. We're going to save some money on hair and makeup in this app. Yeah, actually, that works perfectly for us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, you are really taking this You're role a seriously. method actor, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, they didn't shoot that same day, so it's like they shoot a little bit later. Well, and, and bruises just get worse and worse and worse. Until yeah, and she's still bruised up, and they're just like, great, perfect, yeah. awesome. Well, and there's continuity there. So it's like they don't have to worry about the bruises getting being looking the same in every scene. Yeah. It just, Ugh. I don't know. It's just like, are we not, are we pulling her aside? Maybe this happened, you know, or, but are we pulling her aside and being like, hey, are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? Is there, do you need help? Like, right. Is there something you, we can do. I mean, she may have said, no, everything's fine. You know, I've already yeah. handled it or I don't know, but still. I hope. Oh, God. Yeah. After that attack, Dominique moved out of the house and went into hiding. She wouldn't tell any of her friends where she was for fear that John would find out and stalk her. She reached out to Gloria Gifford and told her that they were splitting up and that she planned on moving back into the house after John moved out. 
She had told John that they might be able to reconcile if he attended therapy and anger management classes. Eventually, John moved out, but Dominique never felt safe enough to move back in. John would show up to her weekly acting classes and wait for her to show up. When she saw him outside, she never went into class. That's smart. Yeah. In mid-October, she reached out to a locksmith to have the the locks changed on the house. She told him that she was afraid of her ex-boyfriend and that she didn't feel safe. As he was changing the locks, John's John drove by in his car. The day after she had the locks changed, Dominique began working on a new project, a TV miniseries, V. And the series is about aliens coming to Earth and taking over. While on set, the director asked her if everything was okay, and she just said that she was having trouble with a boyfriend. Yeah, so here, I think we're getting that she's telling multiple people Mm -hmm. that this is happening, that she's had trouble with him, She's not able to go into her acting classes because of it's, this. it's affecting her work. Yeah. Yeah. It's affecting her work. She's telling people about it. Again, we'll get to that when we get to the trial, but they're definitely broken up. Here's what we can tell you they're definitely broken up. He definitely is not living there. And she definitely is not planning on getting back together with him. Mm-hmm. That's where we are. Yes. So just keep that in mind. On October 25th, Dominique moved back into the house that they had shared, and she wrote Sweeney a letter stating that she needed more time and needed to go more slowly in rebuilding their relationship. She is considering it. But I think deep down, she's probably just telling him this to appease him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and it doesn't matter. I don't matter. think she has any plans. Right, and it doesn't matter whether or not she's going to follow through with it or not, right? Like, he's going to use that later, but... <sighs> Yeah, she gets to do whatever she wants. She can change her mind. She can not change her mind, like whatever. Absolutely. She asked him to give her more time, but of course he didn't want to wait. He did start going to therapy and he told friends that he was, they were going to get back together. And the thing is like, she may have even considered getting back together with him if he had followed through and stopped being a crazy person and stalking her and all these things, but he can't, he can't do it. He cannot control this. He is being rejected. And that is not acceptable to him. Mm -hmm. He gets to have what's his. Yeah, exactly. He said he was optimistic, but by this point, Dominique had made her mind up and she wasn't going to get back together with him. And I mean, this is just, you know, again, he can't hold up his end of the bargain. So, well, and everything that he had done prior to this, I mean, the damage has been done. Like, yeah, you can't erase that. Exactly. Some things you cannot apologize for. There are just some things in the world that you go too far and you just cannot apologize. Right. Yeah. And if you've got that capacity, the capacity that he's already shown, he's already Mm -hmm. strangled her once. Mm -hmm. Then, yeah. Who can fucking blame her for being like, you know what? Even if you go to therapy, I don't think it's going to work out. Absolutely. Yeah. On the day before Halloween, John made a present for Dominique. Oh, see, here we go. This is exactly. mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. It's hoovering and it's love bombing. Yes. He hand-molded a chocolate mask in her likeness and carved some pumpkins for her. It's so disgusting. Mm -hmm. He had them delivered to her house and waited at the restaurant for a call from her. And she called and said, that's it. It's really over. Like, I appreciate the gesture, but it's done. He tried to call her back, but she didn't answer. He called his therapist and told him that he was losing it and wasn't able to control himself. He continued to try to call Dominique, but she did not answer or return his calls. She did call one of her friends, though, and try to talk through everything. And while on that call, the operator broke into the phone call and said that she had an emergency call from John 
and asked Dominique if she wanted to take it. I didn't even know you could break into somebody's phone call. I didn't either. But John bugged the shit out of this operator and was like, this is an absolute emergency. You've got to break into her phone call. Mm -hmm. Like, leave her alone. Leave her alone. So Dominique took the call and John asked if he could come over repeatedly. And repeatedly, she told him no. And while they were on the call, there was a knock at the door. And this was David Packer, who was an actor friend. And he'd come over to rehearse some scenes that they were going to be in together for that new miniseries V. John heard this, and that's all it took for him to head over to Dominique's house. He cannot have another man in Dominique's presence. Yeah, with near exactly Dominique. So John knocks on the door. Dominique opens the door, but she left that little safety chain on. She didn't open it all the way. She didn't Mm -hmm. want to let him in. Packer saw John at the door and asked Dominique if he should leave. And John was like, yeah, dude, get the fuck out of here. Like, I would appreciate that. And Dominique was like, "Mm -mm, no, just wait inside the house. I'll go out and talk to him, but please don't leave. Dominique went out on the front porch with John. And a few minutes later, David said he heard thumping and arguing from the front porch. The thumping was John banging his fist on the windowsill. At this point, Packer went to the phone and called a friend who didn't answer, but he left a message saying, if I die tonight, John Sweeney did it. Oh, God. That's... How scary. Yeah, that's telling. Next, he went back to the living room and was trying to read his script. And at this point, he could hear John yelling and Dominique crying. John lunged at Dominique. He grabbed her by the throat. They both toppled over the porch railing and onto some bushes. So this is... This is a pretty serious struggle. This Mm -hmm. is not just he, and I'm not saying just, like, it's not a big deal, but he's not lunging at her and, like, trying to grab her throat and, like, not really planning to follow through with it or whatever. Either way, that's super fucked up. That's not what I'm saying. But, like, he grabbed onto her throat and then they went over a railing. He's in it now. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it gets worse from there, unfortunately. Yeah. So from there, he grabbed her tighter by the throat and drug her to the neighbor's driveway and down it about 50 to 60 yards. He's dragging her by her throat. Mm -hmm. David Packer looked out the peephole, but he didn't see anyone there. He was, though, hearing Dominique screaming. So he grabbed the phone and he called the police. And when he told the first officer that he talked to what was going on, the officer said that if he was any type of man, he'd go outside and help her. But the thing is, when he called, they also told him that this was the wrong jurisdiction, that Dominique's address didn't belong to this jurisdiction. So he had to hang up and call a different number. (laughs) Like, if you can, if the operator could break into somebody's phone call, can the operator not connect him to the right place? Right, exactly. I mean. And also, I mean, I hope that things have changed since then. But for a police officer who it is his job mm -hmm. to protect and serve for him to say, hey, get off your keister and go help your friend. This is a very, very threatening situation. I mean, John already was like, get the fuck out of here. You know, like, yeah, that is so wrong to be like, well, get up, get off your ass and do something. No, that's your job, police. Exactly. And a few minutes later, they still hadn't arrived. So David snuck out the back door and he looked into the neighbor's yard and he could see John kneeling over Dominique's body. And John told him to call the police because he had committed a terrible crime. So the police finally get there and he left because he feared for his life at this point. John stayed by Dominique's body and tried to give her CPR. And when the sheriff arrived, he walked, he walked up to them with his hands up. And 
there's some discrepancy here. He says, I killed my girlfriend and I want to kill myself. He has also, I've also seen him say that I killed my girlfriend and we'll get into it in the trial, but he kind of says like, I blew it again. Mm -hmm. I just kept choking or whatever. But he also says that he tried to kill himself. So there's a few different, like whether he tried to kill himself, whether he did kill himself, but either way, at this point, he believes that Dominique is no longer alive. Yes. And they quickly arrest John. They rush to Dominique to try to help her. They were able to get a pulse. And, but when they got there, I mean, she didn't have a pulse. So they were able to get a pulse going. Five minutes later, an ambulance arrived and rushed her to Cedar Sinai Hospital. She was unconscious, but she was alive and she was placed on life support and she remained in a coma. But unfortunately, she was brain dead. And on November the 4th, her family had to make the absolutely heart-wrenching decision to remove her from life support. Now, this is where you're going to want to get that window ready. Yep. Get it open. Yes. And go ahead and just like be looking around the room and be like, that could go, that could go, that could go. Like whatever you feel like you could just do without. Yes. It's going out the window. And honestly, it probably doesn't matter all of it's going. That's true. That's true. You yourself going out that window. Can't handle it. Gone. Upon his arrest, Sweeney was charged with attempted murder. After Dominique's death, that was changed to first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty. He would later be charged with assault with intent to do bodily harm after he admitted that he had had a physical altercation earlier in September. During the trial, Sweeney took the stand in his own defense. He claimed that he never intended to harm Dominique. Hmm. How? Okay, oopsie. When? When? He said that they had reconciled and were talking to each other daily about getting married and starting a family. Fucking liar. Not true, not true, not true. He went to, when he went to her house that night, she told him that she had been lying and had no intention of getting back together. Didn't happen. (sighs) Yeah, didn't happen. And victim blaming. Yep, 100%. He claimed that when she told him that, he just exploded and lunged towards her. He also claimed that he didn't remember anything about the attack. Convenient. just blacked out. Yeah. Yeah, don't they all? Yeah. The next thing he remembered was coming to on top of her with his hands on her throat when he realized she wasn't breathing. He said that next, he attempted to revive her by making her walk around, but she collapsed. Can you imagine? He's trying to make her walk around. Yeah, he's like, walk it off, Marty. Come on. Exactly. Are you fucking kidding me? You just strangled her to death. Yeah. Next, he attempted CPR, but that caused her to vomit, which caused him to vomit. He claimed then he went into her house and downed two bottles of pills to try to kill himself. Then he went back to her body and laid down beside her. His attorney said that his actions were not premeditated or done in malice, but in fact, it was a heat of passion attack. Also, though, he says he goes into the house and downs two bottles of pills. None of whatever he said he took was found in his system. And he didn't have to have his stomach pumped or anything like that. Yeah, he didn't have to have his stomach pumped or anything. And David Packer was in that fucking house. Mm -hmm. And somehow he missed him. Yeah, exactly. I don't think so. It didn't happen. Yeah. The Dunn family disputed Sweeney's claim that the couple had gotten back together. They said that he went to her home that night and she had already told him they weren't getting back together. The prosecution and police dismissed his claims as well since there was no evidence to support his claim of attempting suicide via taking pills. The first officer on the scene testified that Sweeney told him, man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I just lost my temper and I blew it again. Blew it again. Yeah. Again. Again. And guess what? Choking someone to death is not blowing it. That's fucking murdering someone. It's not something to be taken so lightly as being like, man, I fucked up. Man, I blew it. Yeah. Blew it. Blew it. Yeah. When people 
die. They're not like, well, blew it. Yeah. I mean, missing the uh, game-winning touchdown. Yeah, you blew it. Yep, you blew it. Yep. This is not it. Yeah, loss of life. Not blowing it. Hey, you guys. Um, it's us again. Yay, it's us. We threw, we threw you for a loop on this one. <laughs> so we know that a lot of you have been asking like WTF, where are episodes one through 44? And guess what? Now you can have them. So let's just remember though, we need you to take a little caution here. We didn't know exactly what we were doing back then. And we started this podcast as just a fun thing to do as sisters. We had no idea that it would grow into this super awesome club with you guys. So what we're saying is the audio wasn't super amazing, but the content is 100% us just being us and talking about some true crime with 90s flair. Okay, so here are the details. You'll be able to access our, what we're calling OG episodes in your favorite podcast app through a private and custom RSS feed link. So to grab that, head over to killerqueens.link slash OG and snag episodes one through 44 today. That's killerqueens.link slash OG. The medical examiner who did the autopsy said that it would have taken at least three minutes of strangling to kill Dominique. Yeah, and how many of us have Googled how long, how long it, takes it takes to strangle somebody mm-hmm. when you've been listening to a case or whatever, or looking up a case. Four to six minutes is what I've always gotten. I know. Four to six minutes is not a, a whoopsie. It's not a blew it. Yeah, the prosecution was like, that's plenty of time for Sweeney to come to his senses and that the heat of passion defense shouldn't even be considered. Yeah. And they're absolutely right. The prosecution also attempted to show a pattern of violence and abuse from Sweeney. They called one of his ex-girlfriends to the stand. At the request of Sweeney's attorneys, she did not testify in front of the jury. Sweeney just, it's like, oh, is this upsetting to you? Okay, we'll stop, we'll stop, okay, it's fine. We'll stop, no big deal. Yeah. She said that they had dated on and off for two to three years, and in that time, he had physically attacked her 10 different times, hospitalizing her twice, once with a collapsed lung. mm -hmm. And listen to this. So during her testimony, Sweeney became angry and jumped up from his seat. He ran towards a door leading to the judge's chambers where he was subdued by two bailiffs and four armed guards. He was handcuffed to his chair and began to cry. He apologized to the judge and Judge Burton S. Katz accepted the apology. And do you know what he said to him? He said, it's okay, Mr. Sweeney. We know what a pressure you're under. Get the fuck out of here. Like, I cannot. The judge and the defense attorney. So the guy that owned Mamezon was up Sweeney's ass for some reason. Like, I don't know what his deal was, but he loved him. And he was just like, even after he murdered Dominique, he's like, well, he's a very dependable young man. Like, okay. Sure. Okay. And everybody's killed someone on accident, but. Yeah, exactly. He's a really good chef. As long as he gets to work on time though, that's what matters. Like. Right. Yeah. So he said he was going to get him the best defense money could buy because this guy has a lot of money. For whatever reason, that didn't work out. And he got a court appointed attorney. And somehow this fucking court appointed attorney is like a bulldog. And I don't know. And the judge. Well, and the judge was like, you know, kissing his asshole. Yes, totally. And like the judge was very like, I think in Dominic's article, he says that the judge even invited his parents to the trial one day so he could see him like in action as like a judge in a celebrity murder case or whatever. So he's all about the looks. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, he would dress up and wear like as much designer clothes as he could under his judge robe. 
He, it was so exciting. I'm going to be yeah, on TV. He was super tan. He was just like all about looking good. He would make jokes with the jury. He would make jokes with uh, this defense attorney. And it was just very, very inappropriate. But he ruled mm-hmm. in favor of the defense almost every single time. Yeah. And we'll and get into a little bit more of that. And to sit there and watch Sweeney flip his fucking shit when somebody is on the stand who he has caused her to have a collapsed lung. And hospitalized multiple times. Yeah. And broken nose and like all kinds of stuff. And she's just telling her story, which was the truth. Which and he couldn't handle truth. it. Yeah. And there's there's proof of this because she was in the hospital two times, once for like four days and once for like six days or something. She was in the hospital for multiple days for these injuries. Mm-hmm. And he actually, you know, that Bible that he would carry every day, he, he decided mm-hmm. he'd found God, you know, before this trial. Of course they, mm-hmm. And do I hope that he really does? I do. I hope he really does. I don't think he did because he's holding the Bible when this happens and he throws it across the courtroom before he gets up and runs out. Like, come on. I mean, again, that is classic narcissist behavior. He wants, he only cares about how he looks to everyone else. Yeah. But he couldn't handle it in that moment. No, he couldn't. And it just very much- but it somehow worked out for him still. Yes. It's, again, you're going to throw everything out the window. Like, yeah. it reminds me very much, if you guys have listened to the Alice Ruggles episode, the person mm-hmm. that I dated that was very abusive, when they came to arrest him at our school, he was reading the Bible. He had started bringing the Bible into his classes and reading it, like, you know, in between stuff or whatever. I mean, look at this godly mm-hmm. young boy. Come on. Yeah. His, young man. His text signature was God's boy. Okay. Get the out of here. Go ahead. Sweeney's lawyer then requested the judge rule the ex-girlfriend's testimony as inadmissible because it was prejudicial. And of course, Judge Katz granted the request and the jury never heard the testimony until after the trial. And that would have made a huge difference to them, they said. Of course it would have, yeah. Yeah. Katz also refused to allow testimony from Dominique's mom and her friends about the past abuse in the relationship because it was hearsay. Hearsay! That's what we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. It's not hearsay. When this, uh, I forget his name now, Brian Cook or whatever, saw Dominique had been choked. Mm-hmm. I mean, he physically saw her. This is not hearsay. He didn't hear from somebody else that Sweeney and choked her. He was there. There were pictures of her bruises there were from the TV show. Yeah, of her bruises. And her friend took pictures. Mm-hmm. And she went to her mom's house when this mm-hmm. happened and told him, hey, this happened. This came directly from her mouth. Like, that's not hearsay. But no. they didn't want Lenny on the stand because she was in a wheelchair. And yeah. he thought that would be too prejudicial to Sweeney because they would give her undue sympathy and they would sympathize with the victim's family too much. Too much. I don't think that you can sympathize with the victim's family too much. Too and much. also, yeah. what about the undue sympathy that Sweeney's getting this entire fucking time? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Get out of here. Sweeney's defense next asked that Judge Katz to rule that there was not enough evidence in the case to prove premeditation or deliberation. So proving first-degree murder wasn't possible. And of course, Judge Katz was like, you got it, man. Perfect. Love it. Yeah. Hey, are we getting drinks after or what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I want to make that reservation of Chili's because they get busy. He told the jurors that they were only allowed to consider charges of manslaughter or first or second degree murder, excuse me. This decision, along with the decisions to not allow Sweeney's ex-girlfriend's testimony or Dominique's friends and family were giant blows to the prosecution, of course. Yeah. 
On September 21st, 1983, the jury acquitted Sweeney on the second-degree murder charge, but found him guilty of voluntary manslaughter after eight days of deliberation. And he was also convicted of misdemeanor assault for the September 26th attack on Dominique. Like, well, yeah, as long as he, um, as long as he gets that extra probation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Dominique's family called it an injustice when Judge Katz excused the jury and told them that justice was served. Dominic Dunn yelled out, not for our family, Judge Katz. Before he left the courtroom, he was also, or he also accused Judge Katz of purposefully withholding Sweeney's ex-girlfriend's testimony from the jury, which would have helped to establish his violent history with women. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is all true. And Judge Katz was like, if you keep on going, I'm going to have you thrown out of this courtroom. And Dominic Dunn, yeah, was like, Dude, I'm fucking on my way out anyway. You you just <laughs> yeah. don't even worry about it. Yeah, you can't fire me. I quit. Like, exactly. it's already happened. Fuck off. On November 7th, Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison for manslaughter, plus an additional six months for the assault charge. When the sentencing was read out, Judge Katz said that he felt like Dominique's death was a pure and simple case of murder, murder with malice. Are you serious? <laughs> Are mm-hmm. you see? He criticized the jury for making the decision they made when he purposefully, you know, I mean, he had the choice to he say put all these restrictions on it. Exactly. He took all the evidence out that proved that this was a pattern for him and he knew what he was fucking doing. Well, yeah. And the jury's foreman was like, we're confused by this. I mean, he pretty much limited everything that we could convict Sweeney of and limited what we yeah. even heard. Yeah, exactly. They won't even let him, they won't even let them consider the first degree murder charge. So the jury didn't even have the chance to sit there and say, hey, do we feel like him strangling her for this many minutes was was deliberation? Was, right. you know, was premeditation? Or what? I mean, they, they didn't even have the option to do that. I just, mm-hmm. I cannot. John Sweeney served three years and seven months of his sentence and was then released. Of course. Three months later, he became the head chef at an upscale restaurant in Santa Monica. Dominique's mom and brother Griffin sat outside the restaurant and handed out flyers that read, the food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. Eventually, Sweeney left this job and moved away from Los Angeles. Dominic Dunn was contacted by a doctor in Florida in the mid-90s. This doctor had a daughter who was engaged to a John Sweeney and wanted to know if it was the same man. They confirmed that it was the same John Sweeney who killed Dominique. Griffin called the daughter and tried to convince her to call off the engagement, but she didn't. Sweeney claimed that the Dunn family was following him around and harassing him. Oh, poor baby. Yeah. (laughs) Dominic hired a private investigator to follow Sweeney around, and Sweeney moved to the Pacific Northwest and changed his name to John Mara. Eventually, though, Dominic decided that he didn't want to squander his life following Sweeney around. Here's something I feel like is interesting about him changing his name to John Mora because Mora was his mother's name. She came to his trial and she sat through every single day of it. She had to take a bus to get there from Pennsylvania. Mm. She sat through every single day of the trial and he would not speak to her. He didn't see her once. God. Hey, John Sweeney. So listen to this shit. After his release, John spoke about everything saying, I think that the time served is irrelevant in comparison to the fact that I'm doing life without possibility of parole in my heart. There's no parole for that. It will be there every day in comparison to starting over and putting my life back. I'd say prison was the easiest part of this nightmare. What a nightmare for him. Well, and let's be clear though. Prison was the easiest part. Well, no shit, it was the easiest part because you served two and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For killing someone. Mm-hmm. hmm <laughs> Yeah, for killing someone with your bare hands. Mm-hmm. An incredibly personal way to murder someone. 
and you tr- attempted to do it multiple times and you got exactly. away with fucking, you literally got away with murder. Yeah. And that was tough for you? hmm Well, yeah, because he's really sorry. He was really sorry. And also, I mean, God, he couldn't even like work at his job anymore. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. He fucking squandered all of this these opportunities that he had. Mm-hmm. And he took the life away of someone who was just like kind and loving was the were the words that I saw everybody describe her as. Kind and loving. They described her as so many other things. She was smart. She was funny. She was just this person that was always positive and like all these things. But kind and loving was something that everybody said about her. And he took advantage of that. He exploited that in her. Yeah. And then he took her life. Everybody else is serving life without the possibility of parole, you asshole. And it's because of what you did. Yeah, exactly. Whenever I read that, I got confused for a second, even though I saw, because you know I read over the script before we recorded, um, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense that Dominic Dunn said that. And then I was like, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. No, that was, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hate him. I hate him so much. I don't hate him as much. Well, no, he's up there with Casey Anthony, that fucking piece of shit. Yep. Had yeah. to bring that bitch up. Huh? I'm sorry. I'm, I, I mean, my hate fire, you know? Well, guys, I mean, since we've, you know, we've talked about Casey Anthony now, whatever you threw out the window, you got to pick it up and throw it back out. I yeah, mean, sorry. You know the deal. But I mean, at least we'll get some cardio in. Well, that's true. Maybe some strength yeah. training. Yeah. Shot put. Look at it like your gym experience for the day. There you go. Yeah, shot put. <laughs> Javelin, <laughs> Javelin and... Javelin <laughs> yeah. yeah. Getting healthy together, ain't we? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's all about... But remember always, and I, I didn't say this before, stretch. Stretch first. Oh my goodness, stretch. You don't want to pull a hammy or something? You sure don't. We couldn't live with ourselves if we pulled a hammy. Absolutely not. Yeah. But anyway, that's it. Uh, that's it. Let us know what you guys think. Do you think that... I feel like I know the answer, but does anybody think that this is really a case of manslaughter and not <laughs> murder? Yeah, um, I think that this is one of those things where it's like, who did you hate most from the case and why was it John Sweeney? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, we know the answer, but yeah, just on the off chance, maybe somebody does. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this, here's what I don't understand though, is like, and I know that it's overwhelmingly difficult for a defendant to get a new trial because of prosecutorial misconduct and it's that's fucked up and it shouldn't be that way. But also, if we can do that, then why can't we go back if this was obviously a case of the judge mishandling this trial so badly? Mm-hmm. He literally... It was so biased. It's not even funny. Yeah, and he withheld information that the jury said would have changed the outcome of the trial. And this could potentially save other lives in the future. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. So anyway, it's just, I just don't get it. All right. Well, we love you guys and we will yes. catch you on the next one. Yes, we will. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, you know the drill. We got some new patrons and we want to give a big hey girl thanks to Jessica Merritt. Bethany Murray, Lindsay Green, Sadie, Sarah Cochran, April McDowell, Mackenzie Escamilla, Mary Winfield, Sarah Weaver, Nikki Kronberger, Anastasia, Jessica Agayo, Kai Love, Stephanie, Crystal Ann, Bianca, Kristen Mulder, Amanda Mejia, 
Sherry Parks, Erica Smith, Emily Presley, Mary Ann Talbot, and Jessica Brown. Thank you guys. And if you want your very own shout out, make sure you join the Patreon at $10 or up. And we'll say your beautiful name right here. Yes, we love you guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. You know, the only thing that I can think of with John Jr. is our cousin. Oh my gosh. J-O-H-N. J-O-H-N. <laughs> yeah, because we called him John John. And he was so... Little kids who live in the South are country as fuck when they're little, even if they don't later have a country accent. Yes. And well, he kind of does though. But um, we had another cousin that came to, I think, my first birthday party. And his mm-hmm. name was John, but it was J-O-N. Mm-hmm. Tell the story. Tell it. Tell it. Yeah. So there's a video. Hmm? Small detour. There's a video and he, John, they're talking about their names and they're both like five. Yeah. I think they're both five. Both Johns are five. But John went by John John. Like we always have just called him John John. And the other John was just John. And so they're talking amongst themselves being little five-year-olds. And they're talking about like their names and how they're both John and whatever. And And they're both five. And they're both five. And so John John is like, yeah, but my name is John, like, J-O-H-N, J-O-H-N. And he's like, and I'm more five. And somebody's I'm like- I'm more five than he. Yeah, so he's like, more five than what? And he's like, more five than he. <laughs> and he's like, that little boy right there. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> I think his mom is like, that's John. And he's like, yeah, that little boy right there, he's five too. Uh-huh. But I'm more five than he. <laughs> <laughs> but the way he did his little hand, like, you know, if somebody is like, eh, like kind of, sort of, like how they do mm-hmm. their hands like that, like shake it back and forth. He's like, J-O-H-N, J-O-H-N. Like he has a little <laughs> hand out. It's so funny. And if we see them, that is 100% what we talk about. Oh yeah, all the time. We're like, hey, J-O-H-N, J-O-H-N. Are you more five than he? <laughs>